The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we've got something special for you. It's another spotlight episode. And you know what? We're going to do things a little bit differently this time. We're going to follow the same format we usually do and cover the same kind of history light, as Steve likes to call it. Uh, and uh, we're also going to get into you know what makes these aircraft maybe interesting in history, but also on the table. Uh, but... It's going to be a combo episode, and we're doing that because maybe you have your midway starter set, and you've painted some zeros, you've painted some wildcats, so we're going to do a wildcat and zero spotlight episode. So with me today, I have Jason Fernandez from California. Say hi, Jason. Uh, hello, everybody. It's great to meet you all. I'm happy to be here. We're going to find out more about Jason, where his head's at, but we also have from across the pond, Leslie. Say hi, Leslie. Hi, Fresh. <laughs> and Steve's with us. Say hi, Steve. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Cool. Well, let's get into this thing. We're gonna we're gonna forego our usual show stuff with you know talking about events and hobby progress. We're just gonna get right into this spotlight episode since it is a a combo episode. I guess maybe it it might go a little longer. So we're gonna try to ring these guys for their knowledge now. If you've not listened to a spotlight episode before, uh, you may have you, you you may not know that we try to cover a little bit of history, cover a little bit about the game with each aircraft, but we also try for your benefit to not force you to listen to Steve and I pontificate or attempt to share knowledge on this aircraft because hey, we're not the smartest guys in the room, and uh, that's why we have Jason with us. And while we have Leslie with us, because these guys know a heck of a lot more about these aircraft than Steve and I probably ever will. Ever will. So let's start with Jason. Jason, tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got into gaming and all that good stuff. Yeah, my name is Jason Fernandez. I'm from San Jose, California. I'm a typical Generation X California kid. Um, I, uh, my ba- my gaming background's a little varied. I, I was into um, like sci-fi games uh, when I was like in junior high. Kind of kind of grew out of it. Got went out in the world, did some working. Later on, as I got older, a couple years back, uh, I got back into gaming. Really, to really painting was really what I got back into, and the gaming just kind of came naturally. And uh, that's where I actually re- uh, discovered Blood Red Skies back in uh, 20, uh, 2019, 2020. and. Uh, just kind of really fell in love with it and uh, really enjoy this game system and uh, I'm happy to talk about it and it combines my love of airplanes and history so you know, what's not to love that's awesome that's how it happens how about you Leslie where are you coming from and uh, how'd you get into gaming you've been doing a lot of gaming I understand uh, yeah well I started gaming when I was about nine years old uh, with a set of ancient rules called Derek Sharman's rules for for the classic period. And I eventually ended up building a 28 mil Spartan army and a 28 mil uh, Persian army. Sorry, they were 25 mil in those days. Um, And I sort of gamed up until I was about 18. Uh, Then I had uh, started work, did a little bit more gaming when I went back when I came out of uh, work and went back to college. And then um, when my daughter was born, dropped out. And then when my daughter was a bit older, I started playing science fiction and fantasy games and gradually reverted back to historical gaming over time. I see you remember you have kind of an interesting story how you got into Blood Red Sky specifically. Wasn't that kind of like by accident? Yeah, um... I went to the Warlord 
joint day where they, they were showing you how to play Blood Red Skies and Cruel Seas. I brought the ticket and saw on the ticket that you needed Blood Red Skies. So literally the day before the event, I brought Blood Red Skies at the uh, at the gaming store. And uh, I think I've now played an awful lot more Blood Red Skies than I have Cruel Seas. Don't know why. <laughs> Probably a better uh, system. That's awesome. Hey, I, I want you to also share with our audience some of the work you did on... Uh, you, you were a huge collaborator for our effort to come up with uh, some campaign rules, which seems to be kind of moving forward and may soon be something that folks out there can get their hands on. Can you share the work you did towards that effort? Uh, uh, well, during the uh, UK lockdown, I didn't have a lot else to do. So I basically went through aircraft uh, production values and produced the availability charts. Wasn't wasn't very much. Give us something to do when I wasn't allowed to go outside. Wasn't much for you. You were like a machine, man. You had so much data. It was a, it was very impressive, and we thank you still for all the effort there. All right, so guys, let's get into this. Who wants to go first? Raise your hand. Wait, okay. Jason's got his hand up. All right, so Jason's here to talk with us about the Wildcat. Now, why is it that we picked you to discuss the Wildcat? Well, that's, Come on, a man. Really, that's a really good question. So I have two favorite planes. Uh, my army plane is a P-40. My navy plane is an F-4F Wildcat. And um, I love the utility of the little booger. Um, I've, been ch I've been chasing these, uh, these planes for years. I've been studying them when I was a little kid. I, my grandfather was a, a radio man on an escort carrier in World War II. And I used to build models for him all the time when I was a little kid. There's one right there. And, uh, you know, the Wildcat was always one that, I don't know, it kind of, it, it, it kind of clung to me because it was kind of an underdog, you know, it, it was a little maligned, but you know, there was something behind it. It held the line for a long time and it really, you know, held that line until better, faster planes could, could come in. And it, and it, it did a lot better than I think it was given credit for in all honesty. Um, so, um, We've 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 uh, spent some time on our our Friday chats, and um, I'm glad we've gotten to uh, get to know each other better. And I think that uh, uh, you've enjoyed our conversations together, and that's probably why you selected me. Yeah, well, I I've heard you talk about your knowledge of really all things uh, Pacific theater. I think has been pretty impressive, and you're certainly knowledgeable about aircraft you're going to talk about today. How about you, Leslie? How um how is it that the zero, how did you stumble into this zero discussion? I mean, really, how did you narrow it down to the zero? Your knowledge is immense when it comes to aircraft of any type. It's been pretty impressive, but you've well, been playing some zeros lately even. Yeah. Um, all comes down to a birthday, a Christmas present where someone brought me a one sixteenth scale uh, Hasegawa zero model and i just fell in love with the, the plane from that day it was just the model was fantastic it was so detailed there was over 100 parts for each wing and you just sat there and built it and i mean it, it took me about three months to build and normally i'd crank out a model in a in a couple of days Ah, but I was just so intent on making sure every joint was smooth and it was filled in and it was properly thing. And just ever since then, and then when I saw the stats for it in Blood Red Skies, I just suddenly went, "Yeah, this is you know, it's it's a perfect plane for me. It's it's agile, it's aggressive, and it just looks right." <laughs> That's cool. So your love for the Zero goes way back. That's kind of cool. Uh, this does seem like kind of the classic matchup, right? So pretty much everything I know about World War II in a Pacific theater, I learned from watching Baba Black Sheep on television as a kid. And I'm sure that's super accurate and I'm probably well informed, but there were no wildcats in that, to my knowledge. Um, so I stand to learn a lot more, I think. Uh, I, I trust that my Baba Black Sheep background is is 
pretty pretty good. That's that's solid. That's a solid foundation. But let's get into it a little bit. I, oh, anyway, I was saying classic matchup. I'm thinking like puncher versus boxer kind of, right? So am I off base? Is like I'm thinking Wildcat's like pretty rugged, maybe pretty good firepower, maybe a little brutish. And then you've got the zeros, like real nimble, quick, that kind of thing. Is that close? I think so. I think that's All really right. accurate. What's tell that's us, a Rocky One matchup, man. Sure. You've been studying up. This is impressive, Brett. I gotta tell you, this is this is oh, good. Oh yeah. All right, cool, man. Well, let's give Jason a chance to tell us a little bit about how the F4F got started. What like maybe its kind of initial design intention was and its role. Yeah. Well, the the, the F4F is really uh, you know the progression of a series of carrier based aircraft. That the uh, that Grumman had been offering uh, to the Navy starting in the early 30s, and you see similarities. The first uh, offering is the F2F, and then it starts to to morph, and and you see the shape of the plane kind of taking place. Really starting with the undercarriage uh, that was designed by Leroy Grumman himself, uh, that sturdy, narrow, uh, rugged undercarriage that really kind of anchors the plane, and um, it, it really you see its development as it gets a little bit larger, a little bit faster, a little bit chubbier, uh, it starts to look more and more like a wildcat. In 1935, the Navy started announcing that they were, um, they were looking to, uh, to add a high-performance uh, carrier fighter to the fleet. And so immediately, Grumman felt that they were a shoe-in. They started uh, developing work on another biplane in 1935, which is the, uh, the F-3F. And uh, about a year or so into it, they, they found out that the uh, burgeoning Brewster Company had also been uh, selected as a uh, you know, possible offering uh, for the Navy. And they understood that they were working on an all-metal monoplane. And so they didn't want to be kept behind. So initially what they did was they just kind of literally ripped the top wing off of it and pretty much kind of submitted it almost as is uh, with very little modification uh, to compete against Brewster. So uh, a few years later, in I believe 1938, uh, when they're actually having the competition, Brewster just destroys them. Uh, they actually win the competition, um, initially get the contract for about 50 planes uh, to start a carrier, um, to an experiment in carrier operations. And it becomes apparent that, um, I mean, it was a bad performance from, uh, from Grumman. Uh, they had engine problems in the very beginning of the performance test, and I believe at the landing, I think the test pilot nosed it in. Um, so it was just a bad show for them. So they actually went back to the drawing board and started redesigning the plane. Um, and they, uh, they, they added a better Pratt & Whitney uh, uh, radial engine, a, 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 a dual supercharged um, or supercharged uh, radial engine. Um, they extended uh, the rear a little bit. Uh, they kind of brought the, the rear stabilizer forward. Uh, they improved some of the internals uh, for the pilot. Uh, they added the ability to, you know, recock the guns midair. They also started settling on armament. They started, you know, originally they were thinking uh, 30 cals. Uh, they were even thinking of some nose-mounted ones at some point. But they, you know, settled on the wing-mounted guns. Um, they retested it. The Navy allowed them to retest and they accepted the design. It performed fantastically. Uh, it also was able to go over 300 miles an hour, which is was, was one of the core uh, core demands from the Navy. Um, and so they started testing their planes, and it was actually it became really apparent that the Grumman had a lot of. Sh I mean, the Grumman had a lot of uh, um, a, a lot of abilities uh, that the uh, the Brewster did not. The Brewster showed a lot of shortcomings, especially when it came to its undercarriage, which just was not up to the task of sustained carrier landings. So that's pretty much where the Wildcat development you know, pretty much comes from. It's a series of fighters, or the, uh, the end of a series of fighters, at least for, for, that, for that portion, until we move into bigger, better things like the Hellcat. That's cool. Well, Leslie, tell us a little bit about s sort of the initial design inspiration or intent there with the Zero. And I've got some questions about that name, Zero and Zeke and all those things you have to get a straight on too. Okay, well, the preliminary specifications for a new uh, carrier fighter to replace the A5M were put out on May the 19th, 1937. Uh, basically, operations of the A5M 
showed there was some shortcomings in China. Uh, so they basically created a, a fighter. Uh, initially, there was two companies were involved, uh, but only Mitsubishi actually submitted a fighter in the end. And one of the things is they wanted it to be capable of taking on the modern aircraft that they were seeing coming in, like the BF-109, the Hawker Hurricane, the Spitfire, uh, the Curtis, Curtis Hawk 75. Uh, in 19, so in 1937, they produced a new specification that it must be capable of destroying all bombers, uh, performing an escort mission, uh, must have a maximum speed greater than 500 kilometers an hour at 4,000 meters in level flight, the ability to climb over 3,000 meters, which is just short of 10,000 feet, within three minutes, 30 seconds from leaving the ground. And uh, it must have an endurance of between one and two hours, uh, with a with a long with a long range of eight hours. So, man, I got to jump in here, and this is why I love these episodes, right? Like me just being ignorant to uh, just a lot of historical stuff. It never even dawned on me that the A6M0 would be like a lineage of planes following the A5M, you know? So like that to me is just like, man, I just was looking that up on the side here, finding out about a whole new plane. I'm I'm going to have to dig a little deeper now to see where that whole uh that whole family of planes originally started because that A5M is actually kind of a cool little cool little looking plane too. Would I would you know, I'm not very familiar with uh Japanese aircraft really at all. I mean, I I couldn't honestly tell you the difference at this point between an oscar and a zeke and you know i, I could probably guess actually that, that that's 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 a little bit of an embellishment but a lot of them to me look very similar is it a5m really pretty similar in look to a to a i guess what's no, now it looks, an a6m zero is that right no it would look it would look closer to um what what you think of a classic dive bomber? It had fixed undercarriage, for instance. Yeah, I gotta tell oh, okay, you, okay. It, looking at a picture of it here, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the pea shooter, to be honest with you. Like it kind of has like that older air racer looking style to it. I, I kind of dig it. I've it heard was, the term "hamp" well, before. Is that a derivation of the zero or something? I understand they may look similar. I, you know, I first heard the term "hamp" when I was trying to find some some decals. And the decal supplier said, well, I don't have that particular one in a zero, but I have it for the hamp. And I was like, okay. I had no idea what that was. I presume that's like a, like an ally designator, like the term Zeke would be for some aircraft. Yeah. Um, not sure who the hemp is. The, I mean, the thing about the zero and the Zeke, basically the, uh, the Americans codenamed all the Japanese fighters with uh with names and zeke was the designation for the zero uh, the mitsubishi the a6m to give it its full title is a mitsubishi navy type zero carrier fighter uh the reason they get the type zero is because it's based on the imperial year which was the imperial year 2600 so the last designation was zero uh, so basically, the colloquialism of zero was used. I mean, one of the main differences between the zero and the Oscar is the Oscar's the Imperial Japanese Army plane, <laughs> and the zero is the Imperial Japanese Navy. And they didn't actually like each other very much. Well, you know what? I, there is a lot of stuff that I find super confounding about Japanese stuff in World War II. Like even just their organizations and stuff I can't keep straight, much less the nomenclature, their aircraft, and but that's why we have you on, because you're teaching me something. Cool. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about notable advantages. Let's start with, uh, let's, let's let Leslie start. He, tell us what really makes the Zero shine. Well, in, in the real world, what made the Zero shine was its ability to fly... A combat radius of about fifteen hundred miles, um, and actually fight at that distance. Not it wasn't a transferred distance. It was fly fifteen hundred miles, fight, 
sorry, fly 750 miles, fight, fly home. Um, I mean, there was so many different versions. I mean, one of the things is with the Zero is when it was first a similarity between the Zero and the uh, Wildcat, which I didn't know, was the first version of the Zero, which used a Zyser 13 engine with a twin prop, proved to be underpowered and was had a very poor performance. Uh, they changed it in the A6M2 Model 11 to the Nakajima Seca 12 engine, which had 940 horsepower and a three-plate prop, and that actually exceeded the specification. So very similar, the, the plane was almost deemed to be a failure. And they went away, changed the engine, did some other little bits and pieces, and uh, produced basically the best plane in 1940s. So it sounds I mean, like it could, it, could turn go on a, it could go a really long way. It's super nimble and has a lot of power. It's fast too, right? Is that yeah, it was fast. It, it had a, a water boost uh, from the A6M2. So they could boost it quite often. And in one of the pilots, Saburu Sakai, when he was flying it, he, he quite often used to say that they'd run it very, very lean, even in combat. And use the water boost to, you know, outmaneuver and out confuse the American pilots because the American pilots couldn't see what it was. It also could, the boosting like that could also account for the, the number of aircraft the Americans thought they shot down. Because when the boost went in, it produced a huge black pool of smoke. So the, the pilots, off, quite often, the American pilots often thought they'd shot down a zero. And all it was was the pilot had just engaged the boost. Wow, that's that's an interesting factoid I never would have thought of. That's pretty amazing. All right, Jason, what about strengths for that Wildcat? What are some Wildcat. standouts? Oh, yeah. Well, it definitely is going to have an edge in firepower. Um, the F4F3 you know, had four uh, 50 cals and uh, the F4F6, uh, or sorry, F4F4, F4F-4 would have uh, 650 cals. Uh, it was a very, very rugged airframe. Airframe, it could take a tremendous amount of punishment. Um, so pilot protection, uh, resealing fuel tanks, it was a very, very tough plane. It was very hard to bring down. I actually remember, you know, speaking of uh, Saburo Sakai, I read uh, an account of his where, you know, he, he was dealing with a zero and he'd already got him pretty much in a position where he wanted to stop using his cannon rounds to, to conserve them for the rest of the fight. And he said, I'm just going to finish this guy off with my machine gun. So he turned off his cannon and he kept putting, pouring rounds into the thing and pouring rounds into the thing and pouring rounds into the thing and it wouldn't go down. And he was just amazed that it would just keep flying. It, he, he, could, he, he, you know, he had to go back to the, the cannon. I believe he actually, I don't even think he even shot the plane down. I'm not 100% sure. But that was the point that he, he just was amazed at how tough it was. No, he didn't shoot it down. Because he always complained. So. He complained that it was one that got away from him. Because by the time he switched to cannon, it had basically got, he, he, to shoot it down, he'd have had to put himself into jeopardy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, the toughness. And it, and it dove pretty good. It was a pretty good diving plane. It wasn't a great, it wasn't as great as, like, say, a P-40 or a P-47, but it dove really well. I mean, it had a lot of weight to it. Um, and that was kind of a problem with it. Hey, uh, Brett, I'm going to hit you with a fact here. You ready? An interesting wildcat fact. And I know right, Jason hey. mentioned this in, like, our pre-show thing, but I know this previously from my days gone by as a long-standing virtual fighter pilot ace that the wildcat still in 1940 had manual hand crank landing gear crazy right and the only reason i know that is because i remember every time i would take off or land in that thing i had to like spam the g key on my keyboard to like crank it like crazy i'd just be sitting there like spamming away on the g key to get the gear down but Pretty pretty late aircraft to still have manually controlled landing gear. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. have thought that had that that would have been the case. I would have just kind of expected some type of, you know, mechanical system that made that retract at the push of a button. 
Wow. Yeah, I believe it was 28 turns up, 28 turns down, if I recall. Yeah, I, I don't know that, but it was about 400 hits on the G key in the simulator, so. Hey, Steve, since you're a, a current civilian pilot, what's a tail-dragging, high-performance air, acrobatic aircraft, or aerobatic aircraft? Is it Laser 2000 or something like that? I can't recall. Uh, I, w- I would say probably if you were going to get a, a tail-dragging, high-performance airplane, you're probably probably going to look at like a Pitts. You know, it's a little well, I'm, a little biplane. So I'm thinking about a podcast I listened to where the uh, the guy that was being interviewed actually flies a a, a restored or working uh, zero, and he compared its performance to an aircraft that uh, I vaguely recognize and just can't recall the name of. And it's I can picture it in my head. It's a a low wing monoplane. Could be like a Vans something. Yeah, like anyway, there's some kid planes that- like that too, but. Yeah, I thought it was pretty impressive because he was talking about like how twitchy it was and how powerful. Like it's, I guess it's power to weight. It just would you could just it's. He described it as being something you could really do a lot with. Yeah, one of the biggest problems with the zero was it was pared down weight wise, um, so it was very very light. I mean, in, I mean, if a wildcat sneezed on it, it would probably fall apart. Oh, you know that's a good point because in that same podcast he talked about the uh, the skin, the uh, aluminum skin was super thin and would easily deform just with like you know hand pressure. If you were you know he was I think he was discussing how just doing a walk around on the aircraft that you had to be you had to be very kind of careful because you could not bang into this aircraft. It was everything was like you said was was made to give it super lightweight i presume for that long range but also the maneuverability that's uh yeah. it's interesting so quite a contrast from what i'm learning to understand about this this uh this beefy wildcat with its big hand cranked landing gear so let's talk a little bit about disadvantages jason you want to lead us off with like maybe some shortfalls of the f4f oh yeah and it goes back to that weight um you know that the um that uh, that that twin wasp engine was a phenomenal engine, but it just could not get that sucker moving. It was it was very sluggish. Uh, it had a poor rate of climb. Um, those are those are the issues that it really had. Uh, it had a poor rate of climb. Visibility was was okay on it, but uh, the the rate of climb and, and speed was was an issue. Um, and when they did add the extra guns, it did actually like uh, really slow down its rate of roll and and really gave it real turning problems. Um, so th- those are some of the things about the Wildcat. It's speed, you know, it's a, not a fast plane. And it, its rate of climb is poor. Unlike the Zero, which had a phenomenal rate of climb. So what do you think, Leslie? Is there anything that uh, stands out as a sort of a disadvantage? We've already talked uh, about it being super light. I'm guessing that might cause some challenges. Try, try no uh, self-sealing fuel tanks. So an incendiary round hits hits the fuel tank, it's going to explode. It's not even. It's not even a, a question. You know, it, if if a, a wildcat hit one of its, you know, for fifty caliber tracer round, went could go through 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 the plane. I mean, you're talking about the thickness on the wing of being between one and two and a half millimeters thick. And the standard uh, they were using were AP incendiary. Yeah. I mean, if that hit if that hit a if that hit the fuel tank, it was going to explode. So not super survivable, I'm guessing. You know, I'm wondering too. It sounds like a really technically advanced aircraft for its time. Were there any um, challenges unique to just like maintaining a thing that that sophisticated and forward air bases it, and stuff like that? Or? It wasn't really as sophisticated as it looks. I mean, it got it, it was. I mean, one of the things is the lead designer, Jiro uh, here. Yakoshki. He had worked with um, the Junkers uh, German Design Bureau. Uh, they sent a couple of their designers over and they worked together. Uh, and for a lot of time, everyone thought it was a copy of a German plane or a British plane. But it was a. Some of the concepts that they came up with was very much being able to turn. Being able to hit, I mean, it had two 20 millimeter cannons in its wings. I mean, for the time frame, two 20 millimeter cannons in the wings, 
and two seven seven point seven mil uh, three or three mounted in the nose. That's an awful lot of firepower in a very agile plane, so it can get on someone's tail. It's going to hurt them. Uh, but biggest problem had no no survivability, no protection for the pilot as well. Oh wow! Did, now, did Japan produce the Zero throughout the war? Were there a lot of them? A lot of them made. Uh, somewhere between ten thousand four hundred and just short of eleven thousand, depending on whose figures you believe. That seems uh, like a pretty big amount. I'm trying to recall from, off, you know, from memory how many like Spitfires or 109s were were built. That still seems like a a pretty big number of aircraft to be produced. Yeah. It, 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 it persisted, was, right? It, it was, it was, it, it was constantly produced or was it just like a early war thing or? No, it was constantly produced. I mean, if they were even producing a new version at the end of the war, uh, the A6M, uh, six M a six M eight with a 1560, horsepower Mitsubishi Kinsai 62 engine. I mean, it actually was built and there was some flying. I'm always impressed by these aircraft that, you know, as I guess a testimony to just how well designed they were, that they continued to see service for such a long time under such conditions and they weren't, you know, immediately obsolete or, you know what I mean? That maybe some little tweak or something could be done to them to, to preserve their usefulness. It sounds like it certainly did that with the Zero then. It was certainly modified heavily. I mean, there was replacements designed for it, and there was better planes designed. But if you've got the jigs available, why not just keep producing it? I mean, the later planes, the A6M8, actually had protection for the pilot uh, and self-sealing fuel tanks. So it would have been an interesting plane if it had got to fly. How about the Wildcat, Jason? What can we learn about how many of those were produced and how long it persisted throughout the war or, or whether it was, you know, I kind of get the impression the Wildcat's an early war Navy aircraft and maybe was superseded by subsequent cats of some kind. Well, you know, the, the answer to that, both those questions is yes. I, um, it did, it did, you know, it was produced throughout the war. Uh, Grumman built them up to about 1943. And after uh, mid-43, they switched over to Hellcat production. And General Motors took over production of the Wildcats. And I believe they actually outproduced them. General Motors, I believe, produced about 8,700. I think the total numbers are around 11,000 between the two different producers. Um, The General Motors uh, version is a little bit different. And the reason why they stuck around, and it's a very very basic reason. It's a logistic reason. Um, the faster planes were not able to land on the escort carriers. You know, we always think of big fleet carriers as being the, the mainstay and the backbone of, a, of, the, of the U.S. Navy in the Pacific. But really, it was the escort carriers that were probably the backbone. They were doing convoy duty. I mean, the Casablanca class, I believe there's like 70 examples given. My grandfather was a radio man on an escort carrier in World War II. And, uh, you know, he used to tell me stories about how they'd watch the Wildcats come in and They'd miss the deck a lot, even with that. They, you know, they'd have to, you know, skip off and try again, or sometimes they'd miss the deck entirely, uh, you know. Uh, but the Wildcat was produced all the way till the end. GM was actually interesting because they actually, uh, the variants they produced were a lot more like the earlier variants uh, that the pilots actually really preferred with the four guns, and they had an uh, improved, uh, uh, an improved radial engine. Uh, they called it the Wilder Wildcat, you know, kind of like the hotter sister kind of thing. You know? Wildcats were kind of used all over the place too, right? There was didn't the RAF use Wildcats, and there was there were carrier based, and of course, Doug will be proud. I can recall that they were land based at Guadalcanal, right? Marines flew flying them off the off air bases. But was that typical? I mean, were land based Wildcats a, a kind of a normal thing, or were they the, predominantly you know, way- carrier based? Oh, they were. They were. Um, there are examples of the RAF using them in uh, North Africa. I believe eight hundred five squadron. Had about 30 or 40 of them, uh, 1941, uh, flying out of, uh, of Egypt. Um, the fleet air arm, they absolutely loved the Wildcat. They were so happy to get Wildcats. Um, 
remember before that they were really dealing with uh, planes that had been had a lot asked of them for the fighter role. They were either employing the Blackburn Skua or the Ferry Fulmar, which both planes, you know, or the Fulmar especially, you know, performed much better than the Skua in that role. But it really, it was a lot asking of a multi-role kind of plane. Uh, so they were very happy to get the Wildcats. Um, I've listened to quite a, a, a few recent uh, um, YouTube videos that have some great, great commentary on the Wildcat. Uh, Eric Winkle Brown has some excellent comments about the Wildcat, just, uh, you know, espousing a lot of the things that I have said. You know, they, they were designed from the ground up for carrier operations, which, you know, for the, for the British Admiralty, it was kind of a second, carrier operations kind of a second thought, I think. I don't think they really paid a lot of attention to it. Um, as much as, like, say, for instance, uh, the, the Japanese, they really, their, their carrier operations uh, development were incredible. And the U.S. was kind of kicking at their heels and doing their own kind of thing a little differently. Well, you know, since I've watched things like Tora, Tora, Tora and Baba Black Sheep, I'm certainly aware that the zero was used all over the place. But how, what, what can you, uh, how can you enlighten me, Leslie, how the zero was used throughout the war, maybe where and how? Uh Basically, I mean, the original A6M211 wasn't actually a carrier-based aircraft. Uh, it was only the A6M Model 21 that was the carrier version. Um, so, I mean, a lot of... The, I, I have a lot no of idea the... what you just said. I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> yeah, I was going to piggyback on that, too. Uh, maybe uh, enlighten some of us uh, more casual listeners here, Leslie. <laughs> Uh, okay, the the zero itself, there is a lot of different marks and versions of it. Basically, the A6M2 means it's like the the original production version, if you like. And then they produce different models of that, the uh, 11 and the 21. Basically, the 11 was the ground-based, the 21 was the carrier-based. They were... Virtually the same, except the uh, the carrier based one, the wingtips folded so you could get more of them on the on the plane. Um, and the carrier operations and land operations, I mean, because the Imperial Japanese Navy and the um, Imperial Japanese Air Force hated each other so much. To protect the the uh, the ports around Japan, there would be zero fighter groups created, and so literally anywhere they they wanted to protect a land based target, a zeros were sent. the The Army Air Force might be there as well, but they wouldn't protect the unless there was army ships in there. And yes, the Imperial Japanese Army had its own ships and its own aircraft carrier. So just to show how much they hated each other. Man, you know, this is this is insanely, insanely awesome information. But you know me and my uh, history light. Uh, let's get into BRS a little bit. How does all this relate to Blood Red Skies? And, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just going to kick it off right away. I have the master list here in front of me and a new one actually published today, actually just about an hour before this episode. Right. So the F4F sitting at a six speed, a one agility, and a two firepower with robust, which what we've learned so far seems, you know, seems fairly reasonable, right? It has that robust, uh, not very agile. So that, you know, that seems... Where's the great dive? Where's the great dive? No great dive, right? I mean, it must that'll be coming in a revision for, for an American aircraft. It'll be there. I, I'm positive. And the A6M20, seven speed, so a little bit faster than the Wildcat, three agility, much more agile than the Wildcat, and one firepower. So less firepower with no stalling, which is like super tight turn, deep pockets, which kind of uh, lends to what Leslie was saying about the uh, long range. And uh, vulnerable, which lends to the, you know, non-self-sealing fuel tanks and not a lot of pilot protection. So on first look to the layperson, if we're talking about these two planes coming in a box together, uh, 
and uh i don't know brett to me is as just the the very much the student here I don't know. Sounds like they got it, got it pretty right with those. I'm curious to see uh, where some of these guys might have gone a little differently. What do you guys think? You have any? Uh, would you have? Would you have statted it different? Would you have assigned more traits if it was Leslie Redskies or Jason Redskies? If I may, I, 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 I think the Wildcat, unlike the A6 M2 variants, the way they're statted, the Wildcat's a generalization. A little more, I'd say a little more of a generalization or a combination of several models, maybe. And whereas the the, the zero variants are very specific, I think. Uh, I think they more reflect the different models. Um, I, I think the Wildcat maybe need another look. Um, I like the beta stats, the lead pursuit stats for the uh, Martlet 1 and the FM2 stats, I think, look, look about right for me. Uh, for the earlier F4, F3 variant. The F4, F4 variant, maybe this is actually perfect for it because it was more sluggish. That robust trait, having six cards, is is pretty tough. We played this weekend, actually, Zeros and Wildcats, and we chested a couple different traits and um, um, some different Doctrine cards just to see kind of how it, what, what a combination would actually work. Uh, we found adding, you know, some different theater cards and trait cards uh, made a big difference, and then... My friend Mike Tran, he actually played what I like to play with my Deep Pockets playing because I personally don't care for Deep Pockets. So I like to use the equipment card that's called Light Load, which allows you to exchange Deep Pockets for Great Climb. And that's a really fun combination. He really liked the climbing combination uh, with being able to knock people down when you're uh, they're trying to outmaneuver and uh, the 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 great turning of the of the of the of the zero. Now, now, Jason, uh, I gotta ask here. Okay, so it allows you. Uh, I'm not familiar with that equipment card. Is that an all or nothing card, or could you exchange like three of those for three great climbs? You know, could you split your deck then and have three great climbs and three deep pockets, or is it is an all or nothing? How do you interpret it's that? It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. It basically, a designated friendly squadron may exchange deep pockets trait for great climb trait for the battle. I'm gonna have to remember that. I think I can. I think at the I next. Think like it. I think at the next GOE, I can rules lawyer that one to my favor. I'm gonna put that one in the uh, in the little <laughs> little note there to <laughs> to maybe you, finagle you know, that. One. <laughs> I, I look at I look at it this way. They always forget to mention equipment cards, so it's just like to say, well, they didn't allow it, but they didn't disallow it, so I'm gonna use it. What do you think, Leslie? Would you change anything for the zero? No, I think the zero is about right. I mean, it has to be considered as vulnerable because, well, basically, it was. I, I mean, you could almost give it super vulnerability. You know, you any like hit it. against any hit against it has a, is a critical. But because there isn't any armor for it. Uh, this this conversation re- reminded me of something we discussed maybe at a happy hour some time ago or maybe even a previous LPP episode. Uh, we were talking about what if aircraft in Blood Red Skies could have three traits, and you but you only play two. So when you come to the table, you play this game where it's three, pick two. So based on maybe whatever mission you're playing or whatever strategy you're trying to run or whatever kind of tricksies you're trying to play out, you you're you have three traits for each aircraft, potentially, and uh, you know, the best aircraft, I guess, would have three traits, but you have to pick which two are actually usable in the game. The reason I say that is because when I look at the F4F, I think, boy, Great Dive has some potential, right? Like, it seems like it, you, you don't, you know, I, I think they got it right in terms of, like, you have all these things it could have, but you had to just pick the best two that most represent that aircraft's performance. I think they did it right. Uh, but if you had three pick two, now the game might, your, your gameplay might totally change. Imagine if you came to the table and you had, you know, great dive. Uh, is it just robust, the F4, F? Yeah. It's so just the robust. F4, yeah. I'm not familiar with which one, honestly, and I should be, comes in the starter set. On the master list... The F4, F3, which should be the earlier one, has robust and rapid roll. Rapid roll. So that would yeah. be more of that 
you know, as Jason was talking about, as they progressed through and, and they started, you know, giving it more armament and uh, a little more armor and bigger engine, you know, kind of lost some of that, uh, that roll rate. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the pick three, pick two is kind of like probably the best idea I've had in about nine years of my life. So I'm, I'm glad That's you right. like that also, Brett. That, that was your idea. And it makes me think of things. I mean, like the zero is a great, it's maybe more obvious with the zero because man, great climb seems like a contender. I think you could easily give it great climb, deep pockets and a super tight turn, right? And you come to the table, you pick your two, you're going to play for that fight. Uh, I think that almost creates an interesting like card battle before the game starts, you know? Anyway, just an idea, just, just something that sounds like fun. But, um, you know, it is interesting, too, when they stat these planes, right? So, like, the Wildcat and the Zero uh, are obviously coming in a box together, right? And they're obviously uh, designed to behave a certain way with respect to each other, which, based on those two card designs and what we learned about it tonight, uh, you know, it sounds like they're really, really good against each other. And what happens as gamers is we kind of go that fantasy route and we're like, oh, we're going to fly Wildcats against P-51s, right? And then, you know, you kind of get into these weird situations where oh, the plane doesn't really act like that. But, you know, I'd be curious to, to pick the brains of the people who stat them. Like how much when you're putting these stats on, is it in your brain that, oh, we wanted to perform this way against this plane and in that respect you know in this box set they they seem they seem pretty good so what historical and or uh or i say historical doctrine and or theater cards that's how i meant to say that uh do you think might pair with these aircraft jason do you you think that uh, i mean you only have robust so i'm guessing there's probably not a is there is there even a bonus card for robust well, the only one is Ram Attack. Oh, yeah, that's right. There that's you go. It. Put a There's bayonet really on that thing. Else. It's a Marine Corps yeah, aircraft. Exactly. Put your head into it, you know. Um, you know, there. Uh, that, that is a challenge, really. Um, you know, the plane actually is delivered when you buy the, the old sets. The old metal sets came with Slashing Attack as a doctrine uh, for those. And none of the bonus traits actually work with it. So in that case, I say you go a little nutty and... Look at stuff like defensive tactics or, you know, something that would allow you to uh, have a reaction and maybe get some kind of bonus movement out of the plane. Aggressive tactics is another one I like uh, for doctrine cards. I'm not one to, I don't really care for like the numbers card too much, but this is one situation where I think it might fit. I, I, you know, I think it kind of fits for the Wildcat. That gives you a couple of extra planes at, uh, you know, at an average, uh, average pilot skill. Is a Wildcat pretty inexpensive? It is. It is. As a matter of fact, I got the It's card 20, 23 points, I believe, for the F4 yeah. F-4. I like it. That's cheap. I'm thinking, you yeah, know, that... 23 that two, points. That two firepower plus robust, I mean, you could dish out some pain and you could kind of afford to take some risks, maybe. Yeah. You could maybe start doing some stuff like, I don't know, opening shot, throw on some rockets. I mean, I don't know. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now in my head. I'm doing the math in my head, right? So if I'm building a list, a 500-point list with these Wildcats, I'm taking five Wildcats, all right, all of them with skill four pilots. So you're still under 500 points. You still have five planes, right? Still get the two firepower, which I think is like a must, and then I'm pairing it with defensive tactics because that one agility is horrible. But if you could turn those incoming shots into deflection shots and have those six robust cards, I think that's a I think that's a formidable formidable list. You could do your Steve Toth trick of changing those shots into head-on shots and get make do the Lord's work with that firepower too and robust. I don't know, that could hurt. Yeah, grab the Superior Armament Theater card. It adds gives one more firepower die. All right, what about you, Leslie? So how are you playing this thing? What's What do you think's a great combo? I mean, I, I got, I think the obvious, I don't, I'm not going to jump to it. I know Steve is, I, I think I, Zero I is now to, his favorite aircraft. I tend to run with defensive tactics for the Doctrine card because you, you can't afford, you, you've got to, You've got to mitigate that vulnerability. 
Um, and of course, with the no stalling card, it's quite easy to get two shots in a turn on someone. Uh, it's also quite easy to get on people's tails. And with speed seven, it's quite easy to stay behind someone. Um, I mean, I also use, I'm also a bit nasty because I, I do things like uh, restrictive air, airfields on my opponents uh, and also give them supply shortages, you know, just to upset them a little bit. That's what you do. It's a thing. It's the zero. You have to manage the boom chips. You know you're going to get them. So what you got to try and do, I mean, one of the things is um, I normally run a four, a four ship version and I put two veteran pilots, an ace pilot, and I also use uh, Sapura Sakai um, because it just fits in lovely. And the unnamed ace, I normally use Cool Under Fire because Cool Under Fire, if you get shot at and you critically dodge, you take the boom shit off. Sounds like some winning combos. Steve, I think Doug would probably do aggressive tactics. Aggr- no think? doubt. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the killer <laughs> with the aggressive tactics. That that uh, that no stalling pairs with everything, just like a uh, you know, just like a tight turn would. So you get to keep reusing that aggressive tactics. Well, the thing about Doug, he can see the matrix, right? Yeah, like I mean, Keanu he's Reeves. <laughs> yeah, he's like that. Uh, I don't know that movie with what's his face, Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind, where he's got like the triangles and shit floating in front of his face, and he's like. I don't know. He he's he's got the he's got the eye for that. I don't have that. I think aggressive tactics and and uh, super tight turn. I, I I can't call it anything else. Um, that's a smart that's a smart gamers combo right there. I think uh, I'm not smart enough to play that way. You know, I gotta like shoot and fly away and come back and hope for and then maybe have some tricks with some aces. But you know this. Got some, Every time we have one of these conversations, right? You know, I mean, I think everybody with gaming kind of goes through their like ups and downs and kind of like where they have their gaming mojo and whatnot. Every time we have one of these conversations, I'm like, oh man, I got to get back on the board or I got to get back in tabletop sim because I just want to try this stuff out. You know, like I, I never, honestly, I never really gave the Wildcats a second thought. Uh, and now I'm, now I'm really thinking about, I'm like, man, I think, I think I could really make those work in, in a little different list, you know? And I think that's a fun thing. Uh, I think both of us and I know Doug also, like we really like the scenario play, you know, we really like the thematic scenario play. Uh, but the draw of the tournament is it allows you to do those things that you normally wouldn't do. Right. And you get to do these different things. So, so man, I really, I don't know. There might be a uh, a wildcat list in my future. I like your I, I like that idea with the um, all fours skill level, pilot skill four. I think that's I don't know. That's, yeah, five fours promise. is five fours is pretty formidable, right? Like that, you don't see that very often. Uh, uh, usually, when you get four those high skill level pilots, you're automatically down to a uh, a skill level three or two in there somewhere mixed in with an ace right and the yak swarm lists that we see where you could do that with the level fours they only have that one firepower which really like that one firepower is really just undesirable to me so to have a plane at 23 points with two firepower really uh man that really makes me do some thinking yeah well leslie talked a little bit about some ace pairings what do you think jason do you have any ace skills you think would pair nicely with your ideas for some wildcats on the table yeah i liked uh what was the one i really liked? i liked accurate i thought that one was pretty good um, leaning into that firepower is that what's going yeah, on yeah i thought that one was pretty good and um aggressive i really like because you can outmaneuver and fire and the, oh, <laughs> the same and the same you know phase which is which is a really good one um leslie you like uh i know in the past i've seen you use mother hen to uh, good effect, do you think you, you think Mother Hen would be a good ace trait with some zeros? I no, I tend not to use it with the zeros, um, because I, I prefer to have the higher rated pilots. 
And Mother Hen really only works when you've, you've got a large number of pilots, so you know you're going to get to use it. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so you, it'd be otherwise super situational, and you might just you'd spend the points for it and never get to employ it, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, talking of aggressive, I mean, Sapura Sakai, his two traits are aggressive and comeback king, <laughs> which, you know, aggressive with someone who has effectively uh, an extra agility point. It, if you, you know, you get him in the right situation. I mean, even when you tail him, he, got, he if he dodges, if he, he comes back neutral. Yeah, the first thing that popped in my head about uh, ace, aces with the zero was um, the right stuff, maybe just to disregard that vulnerable, but I don't know if that'd be worth it because I don't, I don't know. It, it would just make it, it just drops one dice. I don't know. Yeah, the, I like Comeback King because basically if, uh, sorry, not uh, Cool Under Fire, in reaction to an ace being shot, if the dodge is successful, no, no boom chips applied. That sounds better, yeah. I like that. I mean, I did run a, a version of my list without uh, Sapura Sakai, where I had three three aces, all with comeback, uh, all with um, cool under fire. And That's my opponent cool. shot my aces. And because it's a high high agility plane, and that, so you, you got eight dice, <laughs> you're likely to succeed. I think I still had one of my um, my deep pockets cards at the end of the game. Hey, Jace, what do you think about tail snapper on a ace, a wildcat ace? That's a double firepower. I, I, if you're in I a think tailing, that's a good. That's a good card. That's a uh, good card. Her, I mean, uh, if you don't get a, if you don't get a, you know, a, a success with that, you, you know, you're, you're probably rolling. Yeah. I mean, you're rolling nine dice, right? If it's a double yeah. firepower and he's oh, an ace, yeah. you got the five for the ace. You got the four double it. I mean, you're rolling nine <laughs> dice for a hit there. That's a, and especially, that's a you know, if we're talking about pairing it up against the, uh, against the zero with that vulnerable, like, man, that's a, that's some boom shits you're racking up with that. I played that, that card once with Eric Hartman, who has that as one of his traits, and I was pretty impressed with the work it did, man. If you get if somebody's in front of you, you know, if you got a tail on shot, it, it does the Lord's work. It's pretty impressive. So anyway, well, hey guys, look, we're almost at an hour. We've been talking about these aircraft. I really appreciate everything that you've taught us. This discussion about the traits and maybe some different combos and stuff has been super fun. Steve. What, do you, what are your thoughts? What are your takeaways? All right, so I, I've just been sitting here making some notes through the episode. Uh, and truthfully, to, to put both of these in one episode kind of feels like like we cheated a little bit here, right? Like these are two planes that uh, to, to cram this down to an hour was really doing them a disservice. I mean, we could have gone easily solo episodes with both of these. Uh, so one thing that stood out to me when they were talking about the armaments of the airplanes is, again, the Zero with the... Uh, nose mounted cannons, right? And it just like I cannot think of any aircraft except the P 38 in the United States Arsenal, and I guess the, like the, the Aero Cobra, right? The Go cannons ahead, were in the the cannons, the cannons were in the wings, it was the 303s were in the nose, so nose mounted machine guns, yeah. But I can't think of, besides the, those two aircraft, I can't think of any U.S. aircraft that have nose-mounted armament. And, like, why was, like, something I want to research after this episode, why are U.S. planes predominantly have the wing-mounted machine guns and, and we didn't we didn't go with any nose-mounted armament? So I'm really curious to, to dive into that a little bit. It, it saved you setting up the synchro, gear, synchro, synchro gearing around you. The firepower. Yeah, you're not firing through an interrupter. Yeah, the interrupter gear, and that actually has quite a has quite an effect. Um, I was at the RAF Museum at Hendon, where they've got a a World War One plane, and and they have it set up the the interrupter gear, and it is literally with a high firepower gun like the three or three, or especially with something like the fifty caliber. 
you're missing one in one in seven, one in eight shots. And then if you put a four blade propeller on, dang, yeah, I mean it just seems so deadly aiming wise. Yeah, for the um, the U.S., you don't see a lot of examples like that. Um, the old the old Hawk series, the P-36s, you would see that, and that's kind of piggybacking on something that Leslie had pointed out for the time frame, how heavy the armament was. Because when they did have a lot of nose-mounted guns, they'd awfully be a, often be a combo, like 130 caliber and 150 caliber. They really hadn't gotten the math down yet on, you know, weight of fire, I think. Um where you really see the nose mounting armament being a real challenge is with the Italian planes. They're using Breda 50s, which are by Breda, you know, the Breda guns are really rate, slow rate of fire. I'm looking like 400 round rate of fire. So you're firing that through an interrupter gear. You're really not putting a lot of time on target, you know, with your lead. Um, so that's interesting, a real interesting point. It's interesting to me how they all kind of go to wing mounted guns. And I really think you'd see a lot more cannon armament on American planes if we had to go after bombers, like heavy bombers. You would start, I think you would actually have seen a lot more American planes with cannon armament. But so frankly, the mission wasn't there. We saw that evolution with the Luftwaffe aircraft, it seems like, you know, you get an escalation in the... Yes, sir. What you got, Leslie? Yeah, I mean, the Zero went to more and more guns. I mean, it ended up with uh, one nose-mounted fifty caliber two 20 millimeters and two wing, two wing mounted 50 calibers and the two 20 millimeter. So that's an awful lot of firepower. Now you can see why they, they ended up having to put a 1500 horsepower engine in to keep it up. Wow. I didn't know. Hey Leslie, was the zero a radial engine airplane? Yes. Yeah. Just a single stage supercharger, if I recall too. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's definitely not really um, high altitude. There was a single and there was a, a, a multi-stage. Um, the A6M4 was a high-altitude version with a turbo supercharger. Uh, Those are going to appear to what, 44, though? Uh, I think I think later in the war, as they're starting to run into more, you know, heavy U.S. bombers. Yeah. Uh, you're looking at 43. Oh, okay. Well, it's earlier than I thought. Um, yeah, that's how Leslie is. You could say, "Hey, Leslie, I got this uh, this particular version, this variant of an aircraft. When was that available?" He'll, he'll pause for about six seconds, and then he'll give you a specific month and and year. That's how he became uh, a collaborator on the uh, campaign thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it, this was awesome. I loved it. I learned something new all the time. Take away more stuff to research, and yeah, like Brett said, most of my research is just sending Leslie a message. It's, it's, pretty pretty lazy research tactics but uh <laughs> why why strain yourself yeah thanks for coming on guys this has been great and really informative and a fun discussion too about how you know some of this stuff translates onto the table for us uh any any last uh any last thoughts from uh jason leslie well i'm actually gonna try a wildcat <laughs> wildcat list I, I i haven't even painted mine yet um, it just never interested me until a couple of a couple of days ago, or was it the second last part, um, Friday get together? And Jason mentioned it, and I started looking at it and started researching it, and I started finding out more and more stuff about it. And I thought, eh, okay, I'll have to have it a go. Well, I know where you can get some paints. <laughs> How did you know I was going to try to plug Blue Falcon? I would say, get yourself some good paint. Get yourself a U.S. Navy set from Blue Falcon. And I know you're, if I recall, you're working on something that's more Marine Corps-centric, I believe, aren't you? Yes, sir. We're going to do uh, do some early war, uh, that, that kind of grayish-blue color, that uh, a one-off bottle to kind of complement our... our three paints set for that uh you know that gruish bluish gray early war midway color that they had on them i've already got the japanese set me too i love it yeah it's good stuff well look we really appreciate you guys coming on it's that's really i think you just touched on the thing that's 
one of the biggest my one of my biggest joys with Blood Red Skies is it's causing me to kind of stumble and trip on all these things that I never would have explored otherwise, and it's been a ton of fun. I appreciate you guys contributing to that. Thanks for uh, your insight and knowledge on these aircraft and uh, helping us learn a bit more about it. Uh, if you are enjoying these episodes, please let us know. Check us out on our website, leadpursuit.net. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, you know, all the stuff. We appreciate you listening, and we'll catch up with you on another day. Yeah, well, that's that's part of my uh, my whole introduction. You know, I'll probably use the words history light, as you're fond of saying. Yeah, now we changed just, it, right? Like, it's not history light anymore. Oh, it's... Uh, it's history it's, white claw. History white claw, yeah. <laughs>